0: Looking for a unique gift, a new piece of art for your collection, or a signed copy of my book? Head on over to FelixEddy.com. That's com. That's www dot F-E-L-I-X-E-D-D-Y dot com. Thank you. Hi. My name is David McLean. I'm the creator of this podcast. And when I say I'm the creator, I mean I wrote everything and i'm reading it all and i'm recording it and i play all the instruments for the most part this podcast is called eight they're meant to be sequential you're probably going to want to start at one make more sense that way in any case i I just want to say thanks for listening i hope you have a good time the news is next
1: Hi, you're listening to WXYZ, live from the island of Santiago, and this is the Time Traveler's News and World Report. Time-traveling news and information for the discerning time-traveler from any timeline. I'm Fergus McCartney. Today's approximate aggregate date is the 14th of July. If you're from late 18th century France, you may want to avoid downtown Paris. Now here's the post-apocalyptic report. Heavy the rains are expected in Santiago today as another storm system is moving through. Some of the rain will be coming up, some of the rain will be going down and a small percentage will be moving sideways. Many locals are saying that scientific research on hyperbolic clouds was a terrible idea. Personally, this reporter thinks that the fourth dimensional rainbows are worth it. The Time Travelers Resort and Museum has a new exhibit on Native American memorabilia including the Canoe of Hiawatha, a dress belonging to Pocahontas and a mask belonging to Tinoch. While some museum historians are saying that at least two of those three people are of questionable historical authenticity, others are pointing out that, as with Robin Hood's Black Arrow, these are simply a matter of finding the correct timeline. And finally, a family of dodo birds were rescued from the alleyway behind Rob's robot repair. They had become trapped underneath some discarded cybernetic parts. The family is fine, although one of the chicks now seems to have a cybernetic infrared eyeball. Dex Devilly Delicious Ice Cream Bar is having a dollar off this week on Satan Sundays. Offer ends Monday at midnight. Limit one per customer. That's the post-apocalyptic report for this morning. We now return you to your regularly scheduled programming.
2: And now, the infinitely spiraling clock. The continuing story of one man lost in time.
0: A Knight Apart. There was no doubt about it, Keith Quick was middle aged. He'd been a knight for a good ten years, and whether he liked it or not, it would be foolish to be a knight much longer. He was still the best man at court, and what he had lost in speed and stamina he had more than made up for in skill and patience. Of course, this led to more than a small amount of resentment from the younger knights, and there were whispers about how he was only the Queen's champion because of the things he had done in the past. There were whispers about a lot of things. Some he heard, and some he didn't have to hear. Keith Quick hadn't picked up a copy of La to Arthur in a long time, but he knew the sort of things people would say about them in the future. Some would write in great detail about their sexual relationship, painting them as the ultimate pair of lovers, as if sex were something like painting a picture or playing a piece of music, something that you could improve at with diligence and practice, in such a way that it might lift you closer to an understanding about the nature of humanity. This was ridiculous. For all the good and all the bad that ever came of two people having sex, there is very little about it that is new or was new or ever would be new. The suggestion that Lancelot and Glenavere had perfected sex in some way was roughly akin to suggesting that they had figured out a way to enjoy the perfect sunset. And yes, there might be a perfect way to enjoy the sunset, but in general it's going to involve staring at the sunset, and really the rest is just window dressing. There were others who described them the other way, suggesting that Lancelot was so noble that he would never consider sleeping with Guinevere, but somehow the temptation was there and the feeling had corrupted him and somehow that made him imperfect and impure. Of course, that was ridiculous too. In general, anything written by someone who had ever worn a hair shirt was probably tainted with a pretentious sense of self-piety that was completely detached from reality. The truth was that Keith Quick never thought of himself as Lancelot. For that matter, he knew that Guinevere didn't think of herself as Queen Guinevere either. They were just who they were, the people who were living their own particular lives for whatever reason. That would change a bit when the Saxons came, and for the first time, they had something to lose. The deal that Keith had struck between Arthur and Leodegrance was only going to keep the peace for so long. Prosperity brings jealousy, which breeds contempt. The fruits of Arthur's labor were blooming all over Britain, and the Saxons found it ripe for the plucking. The Saxons landed on the shores of Cornwall, Late on a warm night in April, sailing all the way around the island to the far side, it was assumed correctly that the Britons would be less prepared for an attack on a shore that faced the edge of the world. They attacked their first village just before daylight hit, with the smell of fire and cow manure emanating from the area. It can be said of medieval warfare that it was both smaller and more personal than its modern counterparts, "'Killing someone without being able to look them in the eye was rare, "'and the idea of caring for the injured regardless of which side they were on "'was several centuries away. "'It was occasionally said that during this era "'those who died during battle were the lucky ones "'because it avoided the suffering that could stretch on sometimes for months. "'The Saxons pushed into the countryside with a ruthlessness "'that had not been seen since the Romans had left.' By the time dawn had come up, they were at the walls of Tintagel. The Saxons had chosen Tintagel as their first major strike for the specific purpose of embarrassing Arthur. It was his mother's castle, although he had never known her. Its distance from Camelot had made it of less strategic importance than it once had been, and in recent years it had fallen into disrepair. The crown had bequeathed it to Sir Priamus, a former tributary of Leodegrance, who bowed before Arthur when the old king had passed away. Priamus had done his best to restore the old castle to its former glory, but he had not gotten it in such good shape that it could not be taken away by a force of fresh troops. The castle was impenetrable by sea, but the Saxons had landed elsewhere and taken it from the weaker land side. The castle had fallen so quickly that the Saxons hadn't even bothered to use their secret weapon. By the time midday had come, the Saxons had their first outpost in Britain. It was unquestionably a loss for the kingdom, but it was not an insurmountable one. The king could gather his forces and take the castle back, but news travelled slowly and the logistics of such an operation would take time. In the meantime, the Saxons had a foothold in the countryside that they could use to their advantage. They would end up wielding it with the help of a guard who spent the day drinking. He had been transferred from another castle to get him away from the daughter of a lord he was never going to marry. He felt slighted and had spent most of his time since arriving at Tintagel getting drunk with the other guards and complaining. He had gotten off guard duty at midnight and had gotten drunk until nearly dawn, then finally passed out in his bed right as the Saxons arrived at the castle. When he awoke toward midday, there was nothing for him to do but welcome his new lord and master, standing in line with the other guards and facing a Saxon who had been declared their new captain. The guard leaned over and whispered the sort of thing that destroys empires. If I knew what I were doing, I would have hit my Biden, he mumbled. The guard didn't think the captain could hear him. He heard. In 2,000 years of English history, possibly the one thing that hadn't changed was that the spouse of the regent didn't have much to do. Queen Guinevere had been visiting the troops up and down the border, doing her best to convince them that holding a spear on top of a castle wall was an important contribution to society. She had been holed up at the fort on Mount Baden for the better part of three days when word arrived of the Saxon attack. The queen read the letter, thanked the handmaiden who gave it to her, and ran straight for her personal guard. "'The Saxons,' she said, bursting into Keith's quarters. "'They're coming,' Keith read the letter. "'If what it said was true, they were close. They might be there before the night was out.' "'Right,' he said.' and he began putting on his armor. We'll need to get to Camelot straight away, Guinevere said. Keith could tell by the tone in her voice that she was trying to sound brave, but he knew Gwen too well. Keith shook his head. No, he said firmly. It's too risky. If we ran into a scouting party, they would probably kill us on the spot. But we'll need to get word to Arthur, Guinevere pointed out. Someone less conspicuous than either one of us can do that, Keith said. We'll stay here for the time being. The king would agree with me. Keith was notoriously bad at remembering to call Arthur King Arthur, so Gwen knew that when he used his title, Keith meant business. I always knew that they would come sooner or later, but I would have preferred later to now. Guinevere looked a little upset by this you knew that they would come sooner or later. The specifics of why Keith knew that the English would eventually invade Britain were the sort of thing that he would prefer not to discuss with Guinevere as they were the odd combination of obvious, confusing, and self-incriminating that tended to occur when you traveled through time. As a result, Keith didn't say anything for what was a surprisingly long period of time, and Guinevere let loose on him. You knew this would happen. Guinevere's voice had taken on a tone of shocked disbelief. I gave up my life. You told me to give up my life. I gave up. And Guinevere, remembering that she was queen, never finished that sentence. She swallowed hard, pretending that she wasn't thinking what she was thinking, and started again. What happens next? She asked. "'There will be a siege,' Keith said. "'That's how these things are done. "'We will have to ride it out.' "'Won't they try to storm the walls?' "'Guinevere asked.' "'Maybe,' Keith said. "'But I don't think so. "'Taking this fort will not be their goal.' "'What is their goal?' "'Guinevere asked.' "'To get Arthur to leave Camelot and fight them on the open field,' "'Keith said.' "'Is there anything we can do to stop them?' "'Guinevere asked.' By this time, Guinevere was pacing the room nervously. Stop them? No, Keith said. But we can keep the people here safe. What can I do? Guinevere asked. What can I do to help? You can tell everyone that it's going to be all right, Keith said. I don't know that it will be all right, Guinevere wailed. Of course not, Keith agreed. That's why it will take courage. Guinevere flattened down the folds of her dress nervously. Keith noticed that Guinevere's red hair had just a strand or two that was turning gray. He knew that if he mentioned it, it would have made her self-conscious, but the truth was it made her look more regal, like a head of state. He thought about the girl he had met all those years ago at the castle of Laodigrasse, the girl whose hand in marriage he had so casually given away in order to make peace. You can do this he said confidently. He sounded confident in part because he needed to. She needed to believe in him the same way that the garrison at the fort would need to believe in her. Of course, it was much easier for him to protect that confidence than it would be for her. Guinevere ran her fingers through her hair nervously and then gave a nod of acceptance. The castle at Mount Baden was small, and Baden's qualification as a mountain was rather slim. It was really a series of buildings with a high stone wall and a guard tower that had been built atop a man-made round hill that was constructed by men in the days before anyone remembered. Its chief advantage as a fort was that you could see the enemy coming from a long way off. About dawn, the guard on duty spotted a large host on the distant horizon. It was slow-moving and had a long way to go, but it would be there by nightfall. By midday, the peasants from the area had started to come into the fort. There were just a few at first, and they started coming in in a steady stream. There were mothers, children, fathers, the old and the young, all looking thin, dirty, exhausted, and frightened. They came in, and then some more came in, and then some more. A few of the men offered to help, but they had no weapons and were more experienced with a plow than a blade. Guinevere marveled about the men stationed at the fort. They stood proud, acting as though they were ancient statues of warrior gods instead of young men who had been handed spears and shields and had been told to stand on the ramparts and hope for the best. Guinevere led the common folk into the fort's great hall. Keith followed her along with everyone else. Every person that could be spared within ten miles all piled into the same room. It was around that time that the fog rolled in. It was the kind of heavy fog that reminded everyone that living in Britain was still an acquired taste. "'a fog that touched your bones and rattled old women's teeth. "'People stared out the windows of the hall at the great foggy nothing, "'wondering if it was the last thing that they would ever see. "'My gran used to call fog like this the dragon's breath,' Guinevere heard one old peasant woman say to another "'as they sat huddled in a corner.
1: "'Mine too,' the second old woman said. "'They knew the old ways they did.' "'Have you heard that the queen's favorite used to fight with a dragon?' the first one said. "'It wouldn't surprise me,' the second one said with a nod. "'Now all of us are paying the price,'
0: the first one said. "'Guinevere gave them a dirty look, and they shut up quickly. "'There are certain advantages to being a queen.' "'Listen!' "'Guinevere spoke up loudly and then held still until the room turned its attention to her.' I would like to tell you that everything is going to be all right but i can't nobody can we don't know what the night holds we don't even know if we'll see the sunrise tomorrow what we know is that if we stand together we have a better chance than if we face the night alone guinevere gave everyone in the room a moment to look at each other she knew if they started to see themselves as a group, that they might feel like they were all in this together and wouldn't turn on each other or run. She looked at Keith, who gave her a nod. "'We may not have a lot in common,' Guinevere continued. "'We may not be friends or family, but we are all Britons and Britannia is ours. "'It belongs to us and we belong to it, "'and tonight we'll be asked to fight to prove that.' And prove it we will it may seem like we are outnumbered guinevere added but we aren't they have a fairly large host but we have all of britannia every soul every man every woman every child they are all ours where one of us ends the next one begins going on and on from one end of this country to the other this country is ours We know the feel of the wind in our hair and the ground beneath our feet. We have nothing to be afraid of. Nothing, she reiterated, because Arthur is coming for us. He is our king, and he will always come back for us in our darkest hour. The assembled throngs looked out of the window at the thick fog. Guinevere was fairly sure that if there was One thing that was going to bond them all together, it was fear of the unknown. She turned to Keith and said, You are the greatest knight the world has ever known. Tonight you need to prove it. Keith, who normally laughed off any Shilfalric days of yore knightly crap, simply nodded and said yes, my queen, in the most formal voice that he could muster. Keith had been wrong about one thing. He had thought that the Saxons would be planning a siege and that they would just have to hold off until Arthur had arrived. He had thought this because he had wanted to think it, because it was convenient, and because it had kept him from facing a grim truth. The truth was that although the Saxons were hoping to flush Arthur out of Camelot, they didn't need to limit their ambitions to a siege. They were going to storm the castle ramparts. For hours, there was nothing to do but wait. Keith and Guinevere manned the ramparts, leaning against the wall, waiting for the inevitable. Keith would occasionally yell at one guard or another out of nervousness. Mostly, they just sat there. Frequently, they looked bored, because they were. An old woman said that this fog was magic, Guinevere said with a sigh. She hugged herself for warmth. It does seem to be a trifle too convenient. Maybe it is magic, Keith suggested. Guinevere was surprised by this. I didn't think you believed in magic, she said, turning to look at him. I didn't used to, he admitted. But I've seen things, and now I'm not so sure. Are you referring to the dragon? Guinevere asked. "'The dragon, the sphinx, the internal combustion engine,' Keith said. "'You would be surprised.' "'Guinevere turned and looked at him. "'Merlin used to talk like that,' she said. "'She kept her arms unfolded but bumped into him playfully. "'I would like to have met him,' Keith said wistfully. "'It still seems strange that he never had. "'He was Lancelot, after all. "'It seemed a shame that he had never met Merlin.' Guinevere furrowed her brow. You know what's funny, she said. But Keith never found out what it was that was funny, because a ladder landed against the castle wall.
2: When I was breakfast in London, I went to see Hugging one another, the soul.
0: at Guinevere, and he grabbed the ladder. How it happened so quickly, he had no idea. He could reflect on that later. Now he needed to live in the moment. He grabbed the ladder and tried to push it away. It didn't budge. Archers, he shouted. To his surprise, he was not met with a shower of arrows, but with a complaint about how thick the fog was. Oh, I can't say nothing, someone shouted. Shoot the bugger who is coming up this ladder, Keith shouted back, Then shoot the men who are holding it up to the wall. By the time you've shot them, there will be someone else to shoot. Keith hacked away at the ladder with his sword. He was able to break the top step and crack the one below it. This wasn't going to keep anyone from climbing the ladder. He realized that he was just trying to keep busy because he didn't have anything else he could do yet. Two archers ran over and fired arrows into the fog. This kept anyone from coming up for at least a moment or two. Keith took his sword and placed it under the ladder's rails. ''Help me!'' he shouted. ''Get under it!'' A guard came over and wedged a sword underneath the other side of the ladder. They were able to dislodge the ladder briefly, but it came crashing back against the wall and was followed by another ladder. This time, it was on the far side of the outer ramparts. Over there, Guinevere shouted. From within the folds of her gown, she had drawn a dagger and was brandishing it high above her head. Guinevere, get out of here, Keith said. We'll be under attack at any moment. At any moment, in fact, turned out to be now, as the first Saxon climbed up the ladder and over the wall. However, he didn't last long. Guinevere tossed her dagger and buried it in the man's chest. The soldier yelled and disappeared back into the fog below. Guinevere looked at Keith smugly. "'Very good,' Keith said approvingly. "'But now you're unarmed. You need to get back to safety.' "'Someone get me a sword,' Guinevere shouted. "'I'm not going anywhere.' Keith turned his attention back to the ladder in front of him and found another soldier climbing the wall. Keith swung his sword at him. The enemy reflexively pulled back to avoid getting hit and promptly fell off the ladder. Keith got a quick glance around before the next soldier came up. There were at least four ladders attached to the side of the castle wall now. Guinevere was taking control of the ladder nearest her and was slashing at a soldier with a sword. Keith wanted to run and help her, but in another instant there was another soldier at the top of the ladder in front of him, and he was engaged in another battle. He was able to defeat that one as well, but after that there was another, and then behind that one was yet another. There was an endless line of people waiting to climb up and attack him, and while each one had a disadvantage, they all knew that sooner or later, if they were patient enough, he would falter. He might not last for an hour, but he could last for another minute, and then another, and then another. He could last five minutes, maybe he could last ten. All around him men were fighting, archers were raining down arrows, and spears were being thrust at men scrambling everywhere. There was the smell of war, that distinctive smell of blood and sweat that had defined war for so many generations, and which by the twentieth century would be lost. Keith managed to survive for eleven minutes, he managed to survive for twelve. The battle had been going on for fifteen minutes, when suddenly the men coming up the ladder stopped. The enemy forces who had been defeated were not replaced by new ones. Keith turned and looked at Guinevere. She looked tired, but wasn't injured in any way. What's going on? Gwen asked between heavy breaths. I don't know, Keith admitted, but I think an explosion rocked the castle. One thousand years from now, the smell of war, of blood and sweat, and of men killing men face to face would be replaced by another smell the smell of burning charcoal and sulfur and saltpeter, the smell of gunpowder judging by the explosion a thousand years had come early guinevere looked at keith what on earth was that she asked gunpowder keith shouted he wished he had time to explain but there simply wasn't any everyone on the ramparts fall back The garrison quickly began to head back down off the castle wall. Guinevere grabbed Keith by the arm. She was clearly confused. What are you doing? she asked. If we retreat from the ramparts, they'll just come over the castle wall. Within an hour, there isn't going to be a castle wall to come over, Keith explained. We have to fall back. Guinevere acknowledged with a nod of her head that Keith probably knew what he was talking about, and turned and headed for the nearest staircase. There was another explosion, which was followed by the sound of falling rock. In the courtyard, Keith made a quick glance around the castle. It seemed that even though they were trying to break through the wall, the Saxons hadn't given up on trying to break through the main gate. They were poking through the iron bars with spears and were trying to pry up the gate with the flat side of their swords. Keith broke through the ranks of the soldiers defending the gate and stood in front of the enemy. Do you hear that sound, he shouted? Your master is going to blow a hole through the wall. No one's going to care if you took the gate or not. You can follow the other grunts inside when the wall comes down or I can turn the archers on you. If I do, you will be dead in minutes. If you back off, you might see tomorrow. The soldiers stopped what they were doing and stared at him. Go on, then. Ask yourself if I'm telling the truth, Keith snapped. The enemy, directly in front of him, seemed to understand that he was telling the truth. They nodded and then began stepping back slowly. Let them go, Keith said. We've got one less place to guard. The thrill of this minor victory was short-lived the wall on the far side of the castle had crumbled and the enemy troops were already starting to make their way through the gap run keith said they didn't run but parted like the red sea and keith sprinted toward the crumbled stone wall he could only hope that there would be someone behind him someone who understood that every minute they continued to fight they were free men how long had they been fighting for half an hour maybe less Keith pushed that thought to the back of his mind as the enemy started to rush in. No one needed to say anything because in an instant every archer was aimed squarely at the opening in the wall. The first few soldiers through the crack were met with a barrage of arrows and every man that got into the castle was met with Keith's sword. No one got very far in, but Keith knew that he could not keep this up forever. He fought on for another half an hour. Guinevere was at his side, slashing away at every enemy soldier who found his way inside the castle. They were approaching the two-hour mark when the enemy pulled back. ''They're retreating!'' a voice shouted. ''No,'' Guinevere corrected. ''They're going to open another hole in the wall. They're going to do it again.'' An explosion went off on the southern castle wall. Guinevere was right, they were blowing another hole in the wall. They hadn't been as successful as the first time, but it would only be a matter of time before they were fighting the battle on two sides. Keith didn't think they could do that, and even if they could, the Saxons would just blow another hole in the wall. "'Fall back!' Keith shouted. "'Into the main hall!' No one objected this time. They poured into the hall while Keith kept his sword pointed at the open wall. When there was no one else left in the courtyard, Keith ran in and barred the door. The guards that were left guarded the windows. It would be close quarters if it came to fighting in here. Absolutely everyone looked scared. Keith grabbed a guard he didn't know by the shoulder and pulled him away from the window that he was guarding. Is there a siege door? he asked. The guard looked at him. He was either disoriented or confused. What do you mean? he asked. A siege door, Keith repeated. A way out. Is there a way out of here? The guard shook his head. No, he admitted. There isn't. We're trapped. Keith and Guinevere looked at each other. The room was so quiet that even the sound of his own breath seemed to be deafening. Lance, Guinevere pleaded with her eyes. What do we do? Keith didn't answer her, but chose to direct his comments at his enemy. All right, Jack, he shouted. That's enough. Come on out. Jack Cassidy appeared quite literally out of nowhere. He was dressed in a suit of armor that had been painted black, and he had Morgan Le Fay next to him. She was holding the hand of a boy in a miniature suit of armor who stared at Keith with a wide-eyed expression. Given his age... Keith was surprised that he didn't look more frightened. I suppose I gave myself away there, didn't I? He admitted with a self-satisfied smirk. This technology doesn't belong in this era any more than a nuclear warhead would at the Battle of Agincourt, Keith shouted. True, but that doesn't seem to matter, does it? Jack Cassidy pointed out. I have taken Tintagel, and I have taken this castle, all that remains is Camelot and Arthur. This is England in its darkest hour. If I take it now, I can shape the entire world." "'You're just a man,' Keith said. His voice sounded less defiant and more desperate than he probably would have liked. "'I am more than just a man.' Cassidy said insistently. I am in control of this world's magic. I can use it to get whatever I want in life. We could use it. Fight with me, and we can break the establishment now before it even begins. You're still stuck here, Keith said. Even if you defeat Arthur, you'll never find your way back. Jack laughed. Even if he said, and an echo of triumph rang through his voice. "'Look at the boy!' Keith stared at the child. The boy met his gaze in a manner that implied he was frightened but had learned how to control his fear. "'He will betray you,' Keith said to the boy. "'He is betraying you.' "'He's like a father to me,' the boy said. "'The only father I have ever known.'" jack cassidy smiled you know how this will end he said this was true keith knew how it would end or at least he thought he did the boy would kill arthur just as certainly as the sun came up today there was nothing he could do about that truth be told he wasn't even sure that he would want to even if he could even so he could still save these people he could still save gwen Keith decided that he didn't need to discuss this anymore. He let out a cry of absolute rage and ran with his sword at Jack. In a flash, Jack, Morgan, and Mordred were gone. How did he do that? Guinevere asked. I have no idea, Keith admitted. Guinevere leaned against a wall, sword still in hand. Keith looked around the room. He had hardly given it a look until now. It was meant to be a hall for a banquet and could host fifty easily, maybe more. It wasn't like Camelot and was only really decorated with some long tables and benches along with a few straight-back chairs for people of rank, but it would serve for a nice feast at Christmas time. It was the kind of place where people celebrated and laughed and gave thanks and now they were probably going to die in it. Guinevere shook her head. "'What is that thing that's making that god-awful noise and destroying this castle?' she asked. "'It's called a cannon,' Keith said. "'It is one of the worst things ever invented. "'It creates an explosion so powerful it can topple a castle wall.' "'You're not really from France, are you?' Guinevere asked." Keith didn't answer, not at first, but then finally, despite himself, the word no came out of his lips in a tone that could only be described as a confession. I don't understand. Why don't they use it again? Why don't they strike the castle repeatedly until there's nothing left but rubble? I I don't know, Keith admitted. Maybe they want to save it. Guinevere shook her head. No she said it's it's like a crossbow or a trebuchet it takes time to reload it keith realized that she was probably right we have to take the cannon gwen said we have to take it and destroy it if we can if we don't they'll destroy camelot next all right keith agreed how we need to charge guinevere said she stood up straight to project self-confidence. Keith had known Gwen for many years now, and he knew that she was no fool. He knew that she understood that the odds were stacked against them. She understood that if they left the castle, they were probably going to die. However, it was possible that they might be able to lose the battle but win the war. How can, can you show us how to destroy it? Gwen asked. Keith thought about this the cannon is powerful but it's heavy and slow if you break its wheels it will be disabled perhaps permanently guinevere nodded good enough she replied she took a step forward and surveyed the room everyone listened for a command from their queen listen she said i know that you're scared i am too but we have a chance to do something great something extraordinary Most people never have that chance. I know you all have family and loved ones that are not here right now. I want you to think of them. I want you to think of them and know that they will remember what you do today. They will remember it and their children will remember it. Ask yourselves, how do you want them to remember you? Do you want them to think that we died in fear or that we lived as heroes? Now I ask you, in the name of King Arthur, to help me save the kingdom. Keith couldn't help but think that Guinevere had gotten the hang of rallying the troops. He nodded approvingly. How are we going to find it in this fog? a soldier asked. It should be on the other side of that second crack in the castle wall, and you'll know it from the smell, Keith said. It will smell like nothing you're familiar with like fire and brimstone. It is the smell of hell itself. This seemed like a reasonable answer to everyone and they headed for the castle gate. Keith couldn't help but feel that this was a bit of a mean trick. He had just told the enemy soldiers trying to get through the gate that they didn't need to bother trying and now he was about to come running out of it. He decided that he didn't care. There were a lot worse things that could happen in a war than telling a lie. Archers, he yelled. On the count of three, the gate will go up. He nodded at an elderly-looking farmer who had agreed to work the gate. I'll need you to unleash as many arrows as you can as far as you can shoot them. Everyone running out of the gate will cut sharply to the left and keep to the wall as much as we can. The cannon should be over there. Ready? One? He paused for effect. Two? He paused again. Who is the boy? Guinevere asked. She was standing right next to him, and her voice was barely a whisper. You're asking me this now? Keith asked, whispering back. I'm asking you now because I may not have the chance to ask you later, Guinevere said. He was standing right next to Morgan. Is he her son? Keith took a fraction of a second too long to answer. "'I suppose he is,' he said. "'And then he shouted, "'Three!' "'They were running blind. "'Keith had only the slightest sense of where they were. "'The fog was even denser outside the castle. "'He was convinced now that it must be magic, "'if for no other reason than he refused to believe "'that his opponent could be that lucky. "'Keith cut to the left, swinging his sword wildly.' He could not see more than three feet in front of him, but he sensed a presence. He ran for fifty meters. He ran for a hundred. He felt a sharp jab in his side. He'd been struck by something, an arrow most likely. But so far his chainmail seemed to be holding. He didn't have time to worry about it now. Finally, he smelled it. The distinct smell of gunpowder was emanating from just ahead. Keith swung his sword wildly. He swung at anything that moved without stopping to think if it was friend or foe. He swung at the unarmed men loading the cannon. He swung at the large oak wheels. He swung at the spokes until they cracked. The left wheel collapsed under its own weight and the cannon dropped to the ground. If the Saxons were lucky, it might be lifted out of the mud at some point, but they would not be firing it today or the next. Guinevere came running up to Keith. She was out of breath and bleeding from her left forearm. They had done it. The cannon was gone. They had achieved an important goal that would probably win the battle in the long run, but it had come at a great cost. He and Guinevere had a handful of loyal soldiers and were now surrounded. Keith stood back to back with Gwen, waiting for the first to approach. It would only be a matter of moments now. Keith let out a cry of anguish and swung hard at his nearest foe. And then, miraculously, something happened. The skies began to part, and the fog lifted. Whatever magic had created the mist had passed, and Keith could see down the side of the mountain. There was a second army coming up. Arthur had come to save his queen. He must have ridden as if the hounds of hell were at his heels, but there he was, leading every free soldier in Britannia in a great charge, and this time the Saxons were at the disadvantage. Their captains tried to turn the army around, but this proved to be a monumental task, and if anything, the confusion only made it easier for Guinevere and Keith's troops to attack the Saxons head-on. In a matter of minutes, what had moments ago seemed like a sure defeat was turning into a rout. Guinevere wasn't more than twenty paces from her husband at one point, but there was no time for embracing. Keith continued to swing away at the enemy forces, but now it was a matter of pursuit rather than survival. Personally, Keith would like to have taken on Jack Cassidy himself, but he was equally content to let him go. His fight had been to protect the Queen, and he had managed to do that. Arthur, however, clearly wasn't going to be satisfied by this. He continued to press his advantage, and the knights of the round table were dividing the remaining forces and driving them into the forest on the far side of the castle. Why is he pushing so hard? Guinevere asked. Surely they're going to get scattered once they're in the forest. There won't be any way to chase them in there. The boy, Keith said. He wants the boy. Keith said it in the heat of the moment and instantly regretted it. What he had said was true, but it was the kind of truth that once exposed lay bare like a raw nerve. The boy, Guinevere asked. Why would he want the boy? "'Keith didn't answer. "'The silence was more condemning than anything he could have said. "'Why does he want the boy?' Gwen asked again. "'You saw the boy,' Keith said. "'You saw his face. "'Who do you think his father is?' Guinevere shook her head. "'You said Morgan was his mother.' "'I did,' Keith agreed. "'But that's impossible,' Guinevere said. Morgan is Arthur's sister.' "'I know.' "'Keith said. "'Guinevere understood. "'Does he want to take the boy or kill him?' "'Guinevere asked. "'Keith didn't answer. "'He looked down the hill. "'Arthur was personally leading a charge "'against the remaining Saxons. "'He was swinging Excalibur left and right, "'felling any enemy that came within two meters of him. "'His heart was so full of rage that it seemed possible "'he might just beat the opposing forces all by himself.' He wants to kill him, Keith said simply. He is pouring every last resource his kingdom has into keeping you from finding out the truth. Arthur! Guinevere screamed. The air was filled with the sound of a queen's heart breaking. The queen's shriek seemed to part the troops better than a fresh battalion of men ever could. By the hundreds, against all orders and reason, the men parted ways for the Queen of Britannia. She walked through the opposing forces without even the gentlest brush against her skin. Without warning or explanation, the war came to a stop. Arthur, the Queen's voice was a tragedy of roses and broken glass. Arthur, is it true? Is the boy your son? Excalibur had been the very last blade to stop swinging. The king turned and looked at his wife. His expression was that of a man who had never heard the word no before and was suddenly confronted with it. He turned and looked at the boy. The fighting had been done at close quarters and they stood only fifteen meters apart at most. The young man had his mother's dark hair, but the rest of his face was entirely Arthur's. The boy didn't look frightened by anything his father had done. On the contrary, he seemed to be staring up at his father, as if he were a historical curiosity. Jack Cassidy dropped his weapon and put his arm around the boy. His gaze found Keith's, and he gleamed wickedly. Jack had mentioned to Keith that they both knew how this would end, but now they both knew why. Young Mordred had seen his father for the first time, and Arthur had tried to kill him. I guess, Arthur said, he would say nothing more, and would never speak on the subject ever again. It did not matter, though. It was enough. Eventually bureaucrats would iron out the details, and just like that the battle was over. Arthur had admitted that Mordred was his son and therefore his heir. The Saxons had lost the battle and had to retreat. Arthur would let them keep Tintagel since it had belonged to Mordred's grandmother anyway. Guinevere had seen enough. She turned around and strolled back towards Keith. You knew about this, didn't you? She asked, glaring at him. Yes, Keith admitted. How long have you known? Guinevere asked Keith thought about how to answer this He decided the best course of action would be to tell the truth No matter how little sense it made Since before I met you He admitted Guinevere sighed She looked down at her feet I leave you to Nimue She replied And she walked away Keith didn't know what this meant and didn't follow her the day had brought more sorrow than anyone could count, but there was one more tragedy. It wasn't until many hours later, when Keith was surveying the collection of the dead, that a grey haired knight was discovered lying near a tree; his face was completely bashed in and unrecognisable, but his coat of arms instantly gave him away as Sir Tor. Sir Tor knew that his last days of being a knight were on him, one way or another. Knights didn't have a retirement home. When the king had called him to fight, he had suited up in his finest chainmail shirt and had marched near the end of the host. He had hoped to provide more support than actual fighting. Unfortunately, when Arthur had flanked to the south to compensate for the Saxons' retreat, he had put Sir Tor close to the action on the north side. He had been part of a small brigade that defended the rear flank from a group of Saxons. Although by and large Arthur's attack was successful, the small band of Saxons had splintered off and tried to flee in the opposite direction. They were tracked down by Sir Tor and about twenty other soldiers. Sir Tor, if he had been given a choice, would have preferred not to die at all, but if it were to happen, he would have wanted to die in battle. As it was, he got his wish. Although a call for help was given, the rest of Arthur's knights were distracted by the main battle and the small band led by Sir Tor were overpowered quickly. Tor took a wound to the abdomen, which was sure to be mortal, and fought like a wounded lion until at last his enemy overpowered him. Keith had not even known that he was there, although in retrospect he should have known his friend would be in the mix somewhere. The aftermath of a battle is never pretty. At Keith's suggestion... Keith and Guinevere spent a week after the battle burying the dead on both sides. After that, they went their separate ways. Guinevere retreated into the depths of her religion. She founded one of the first convents in Great Britain and poured her heart and soul into prayer and study. Keith mounted his horse. He rode to the north until he reached Hadrian's Wall. He sold his horse and grew a beard and resumed his work as a blacksmith. Within a month, it was as if none of the events he had seen at Camelot had ever happened. There were some who claimed that he had been in love with Guinevere, that they had been in the middle of a passionate love affair and that Arthur had simply caught them. There were others who had believed that they had run off together, that Guinevere was lying in a bed next to him in some castle far away. They would think that because they wanted to think it. The truth was that neither Lancelot nor Guinevere needed lust to drive them away— "'All it had taken was two words from King Arthur. "'I guess. "'As for Arthur himself, he was alone now. "'The beginning of the end had begun. "'It was difficult to explain how Helen felt about this story "'when she first heard it, "'but afterwards she went to her room and spent the evening drawing. "'When her mother came to check on her, "'she found that she had been drawing a picture of an owl and a pussycat "'sailing away in a pea-green boat.' "'just like the poem.' "'That's beautiful,' Alice complimented her daughter. "'I hope so,' Helen replied. "'Do you want to show it to your father when he gets home?' Alice asked. "'No,' Helen insisted, and she put the picture in the drawer. "'No?' Alice asked, clearly a little disappointed. "'It's very beautiful.' "'No,' Helen said.' He doesn't get to see everything. She was right, of course, you don't get to see everything. In spite of how he had gotten there, at some point Keith had made a choice to stay in Camelot, or at any rate, he had made a choice to embrace life there instead of desperately trying to get back home, no matter what the cost. It was probably the best choice he could make under the circumstances, but that didn't mean there weren't consequences. Things in his life he just wasn't going to see. Spring wasn't sure what effect the story of Mount Baden had on Helen in the long run, but it most definitely had an effect on how she felt about what Spring ended up telling her next. Hi! My name is David McLean. I'm the creator of this podcast. I just wanted to say thanks for listening. If you like this story, I can tell you that this is a sequel of sorts to a book I wrote called The Time Traveler's Resort and Museum. It is available on Amazon, but if you buy it from Amazon, I think I make like a nickel. It might be less, so I'll buy it from my wife's website, felixeddy.com. Or you can buy it from my publisher, Mirror World, The dragon who did not appear in this episode but I think we mentioned him briefly is also from a book I wrote called uh, Dragon Bait you can also get that one from my wife's website if you really like this podcast you want to subscribe and leave a review that's great that's not what it's about for me I'm just uh, working through something I've got on my hard drive And I wanted to show it to someone. So thanks for listening. The Battle of Mount Baden, by the way, is a true story of sorts, in that there really was a Battle of Mount Baden. People always ask me about King Arthur, they ask if King Arthur was real. And I always have to tell them no, because, well, there's no evidence to suggest he was real at all. Except for one line in a one-page document that says he won the Battle of Mount Baden. That's really the only evidence there is that he was real. But still, I wanted to include it. Next week, we're going to start to learn about Alice's mother. Excuse me, Helen's mother, whose name is Alice. Alice. And we're going to learn this story from her point of view. What's going on with her right now while Keith is off being Lancelot? Thanks for listening. Have a good night.